A reading from Isaiah. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The word of the Lord.
who tends to us that we might bear good fruit. Amen. You can dress it up with philosophical language and call it theodicy. You can put it as bluntly as C.S. Lewis did and call it the problem of pain. But you cannot escape the question, why do bad things happen? Scripture devotes the entirety of the book of Job to this question. Recall that Job begins with the main character leading a happy life with many possessions, with vast acreage, with a lot of farm animals, and a big happy family. And then everything starts to go wrong, and he loses everything and sits on an ash heap as his wife tells him to curse God and die. Throughout the book, his friends come to him and put forth complex arguments to explain why everything has gone wrong in his life. Until finally, God appears at the end. This is the same question that Jesus poses to the crowd today. Bad things are happening. There were a group of people murdered by Pilate. This, in and of itself, is not unusual because Pilate was nothing if not a violent murderer. And our Lord asks them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, that they were worse sinners? than all the other Galileans? He asks them about another group. He says, what about these people that the tower fell on? Do you think that they were somehow worse than you are? Christ answers his own question with a warning. Unless you repent, you will all perish, just as they did. And boy, howdy, have some pastors made hay with this verse especially in what we might call the young, restless, and reformed circles. Every disaster, they say, is God yelling at us to repent. For instance, in 2009, a tornado struck Minneapolis and damaged an ELCA church, toppling the cross-topped steeple just a few blocks from where we were having our church-wide assembly. John Piper, who serves Bethlehem Baptist in the Twin Cities, interpreted it as an omen, describing the storm as a gentle but firm warning to the ELCA and all of us. And reflecting on his own life later that week, he said, I have cancer, and that is my own tornado. That is God's own warning to me. C.J. Mahaney, another one of these reformed pastors, is known to answer the question, how are you doing with better than I deserve? His reasoning is that because he is not actively being tortured by God, he is getting off easy. These pastors and many like them view everyone as unfruitful fig trees. And God is the vineyard owner sharpening the axe. Did something terrible happen in your life? Well then, these men, and they are entirely men, say, praise God, for he is trying to get your attention and to teach you to rely on you, but to rely on him. The worst day of your life isn't actually bad. 
there is no problem of pain because all pain and anguish is really just God trying to teach you something. This is the best of all possible worlds. God is sovereign, these pastors say, and therefore God is controlling every last cancer cell, every tremor of Parkinson's, every spark that grows to become a raging inferno, every drop of every flood, every gust of every destructive storm, just to make sure that we get the message. In this view, God is an abusive Heavenly Father, beating us up and then blaming us for the violence. And we should not wonder that men like John Piper and C.J. Mahaney and Albert Moeller are so con- who are so concerned about God's warnings to the ELCA never stop to wonder what God might think about the well-documented plague of vitriolic misogyny, abuse, and domestic violence that runs rampant in these self-styled Reformed churches. Their view of God is abusive, and so, of course, abusive men have a home in their churches. If you press one of these pastors on this, if you ask how a loving God could be so cruel, they respond by quoting this morning's passage from Isaiah. For God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are God's ways our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways. So take comfort, these pastors say, because you deserve so much worse. You deserve to suffer for all eternity, but God is gracious and all to kicking you around for a little while now. If you ask these pastors, they will tell you that God's love looks an awful lot like God's wrath. But dear friends, this is not who our God is. Dare I say, these pastors preach a heretical gospel of an abusive God. Consider the words from the prophet Ezekiel. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. Dear ones, pain and suffering exist because we live in a fallen world. The pain and suffering we experience is a curse. Why do bad things happen? Because sin entered the world and brought death with it. We are dead in our sin. But this evil is not of God. Some of the pain and suffering we inflict upon ourselves and each other, some we endure because all of creation has fallen. But we don't suffer because God is standing over us with the axe and the gas can. We suffer because sin and death rule the world. But they rule only for a time. God is sovereign, but God's sovereignty does not mean that God is causing sickness or pain. Rather, God's sovereignty means that God will triumph over sickness and pain on the glorious last day. At the last, God will vanquish sin and death and all their minions that we may have life and have it lavishly. Why would God do this for us? 
Why, the sinners that we are, would God seek us out? Well, let's revisit that passage from Isaiah. But let's read more than just the last verse. What is God saying through the prophet? Not that God is angry beyond our comprehension, but that God is gracious beyond what we can understand. This prophecy starts with a promise of abundant generosity. Come, buy, without money, without price. This is a radical invitation to, pro, to prolific forgiveness. Repent, says the Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. That's the part that is so much higher than our ways. That's the part that is so much loftier than our thoughts. Our ways are violent. We get an eye for an eye. We get a tooth for a tooth. If God were as violent and vengeful as us, we would understand, because we're really good at that part. We get that. But what we fail to grasp, what is beyond our comprehension, is how God could be so gracious as to have mercy on the wicked. Too often, when Jesus tells us parables, we assume that he means that God is the person in utmost authority. We assume that God must be the judge or the wealthy landowner. And we ignore whatever horrendous things those characters do in the story. So through this lens, we read his words today, we read Christ's words today, and think that God is the vineyard owner. We think that God is the one who is eager to cut down the tree. But we're reading the words of our incarnate Lord on his way to Jerusalem. We read the words of a man preparing for his passion that he might bring about forgiveness of sins. We worship a God whose strength and authority look like foolishness and weakness in the eyes of the world, who has given up, the given up power to seek after us. Is this the reaction of a vineyard owner ready to call it quits? Ready to chop down a tree? No. Last week, Jesus compared himself to a mother hen standing between foxes and her chicks. And next week, we'll read that most familiar of parables, the prodigal son, where Jesus compares our heavenly father to a dad welcoming back his runaway child without precondition, without a list of demands. He says, go butcher the fatted calf. My son has returned. Let us celebrate. Elsewhere in scripture, we see God compared to a good shepherd laying down his life for the flock, not taking the lives of others. We see God compared to one who leaves the 99 sheep to seek for one. We see God compared to a woman who overturns everything in her house just to find one lost coin. So who is this gracious and merciful God in today's text? the gardener. God is the one who is patiently tending to us, nourishing the tree, waiting for it, pleading with it to bear good fruit. So again, I emphatically repeat, God is not the source and author of our suffering. These came into the world when our first parents fell into slavery, to sin, and death. And they have some small authority over us still. But this misery is not what God intends for us. 
No, our Lord is pursuing us, calling us to repent and to believe that we might find everlasting life. Christ is teaching and leading us, nourishing us with the sacraments and enlivening us with the Holy Spirit that we might bear good fruit. During this trip through the Lenten wilderness and in this year of lingering pandemic and unprovoked war, as death and destruction make their presence felt, remember that they may have their say for a time, but their days are numbered. They may strike at our incarnate Lord, but they will not win. Because our God is sovereign, and our God loves us and desires us to live. When pain and suffering come for you, gaze upon the cross. And remember that Christ has suffered death, but risen victoriously. Even the cross, even that instrument of death and destruction, has become the tree of life by which our Lord conquered death and open to us the way of everlasting life. Cling to the cross and place your trust in the one who hung from it but has risen again. Dear friends, repent and believe. Drink deeply from the baptismal waters that you might die daily of sin and death, but live in Christ. Feed on the presence of Christ given to us at this altar that you might grow strong in the Lord. Breathe the Spirit in deeply. Be nurtured by God, our tender gardener, and bear good fruit worthy of such repentance. Amen. Amen.